Two, one. I think it's time that we start the conversation to silence the shame. Silence the shame. Si- silence the shame. Silence is the difference between treatment or pain, life or death. Silence the shame. Speak up now and silence. 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 Silence the shame. What's up? What's up, everybody? It's your girl Shanti Das, the host of the Silence the Shame podcast. We are forty-eight strong. Woo! I cannot believe this is episode forty-eight. We appreciate everyone that has been listening, tuning in, passing along the content, rating, subscribing, reviewing, all of that good stuff. So we, we truly, truly appreciate you. Um, July is Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, also known as BIPOC Awareness Month, which is Black Indigenous People of Color. There's a little debate on each end whether we should still be calling ourselves minorities or we should just be putting ourselves in a box, in a BIPOC box. But Nonetheless, you can refer to it as Minority Mental Health Awareness Month and shout out to the late great B.B. Moore Campbell, um, who actually was able to establish Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. So we could talk about, you know, some of the injustices as it relates to mental health in communities of color, especially black communities. Um, And now with the new term BIPOC, you know, it's just so many people in underserved communities, right, that are suffering. Um, So we're just here to continue to spread this information and get the information to the people so that we can hopefully help people get the help that they need. We are super excited about our conversation today. And now I want to bring in my co-host, Free the Vision. What up, Free? What up, Shanti? How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Good, good. Uh, I know you are off the heels of a work vacay trip, kind of all combined. So we're glad to have you back in the A. Um, And it's always just a pleasure to be in your company. And we at Silence of Shame truly appreciate you being an integral part of this podcast and everything that we do. Oh, of course. Of course. Thank you guys always for having me. And I want to thank you for uh, securing our our, our guest that we're going to be talking to today. You guys are in for a real treat. Um, we want to welcome Miss Nite Williamson to the show. She is a licensed professional counselor. And again, this is episode 48, and we're going to be talking about sexual trauma and family support today, which is so important. This actually is a really serious subject um, and one that we hope you all will share within your uh, individual families and communities because um, so many people suffer in silence. And again, that's why we want to have this conversation and silence the shame around sexual abuse um and family support and mental health support so without further ado what's up Nite? hey how you doing good how are you i'm doing well i can't complain (laughs) thank you so much for being here and for just your willingness to share the story i know that you and our co-host free you know have a a history of growing up together knowing a lot of the same people so i'm going to kind of kick this over to free and let him jumpstart this important conversation with you. Yeah, 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 for sure. So I've known Nite for, man, it's like maybe about 28 years now at this point. But um, I I knew that we had to have this conversation because you have such an interesting story, Nite. I wanted to, um, and I know that you're very comfortable with discussing it. Um, I wanted to first tell us a little bit about you and your experience um, and what drove you to ending up becoming an LPC um, with a a niche in sexual trauma, especially in children? Yeah, so first of all, I'll answer that backwards (laughs) because my life, uh, my testimony, my personal experiences allowed me to 
drive into this field. Um, being a victim of sexual abuse, um, I knew I wanted to help other people, um, but I didn't know it was gonna go this way. <laughs> I went to school to get my master's. And of course we had to find an internship and the internship that selected me was a child advocacy center. So I have been working in the trauma field for over six years, counseling kids that have been victims of sexual abuse, physical abuse and or neglect and victims of sex trafficking. So I've been doing this for quite some time now. Mm -hmm. And how do you mind talking a little bit about your experience? Because I know that this is deep conversation and we, a lot of times families end up running into conflicts when certain things happen within the family and how to handle those things. So um, can you tell us a little bit about your personal experience and, um, and, and how that has affected your work even? Yeah, so I think um, I'll start when I was 11, I wanna say. Um, I was sexually abused by my stepfather for, I wanna say over a two to three year period. Um, one of the things that when it first happened, I think I was just kind of caught off guard. Like, is this really happening? Um, mind you, I knew my stepdad, as long as I can remember me and my dad, I didn't grow up with my biological father. So my stepdad was all that I knew as, you know, a father figure. Um, and so I want to say it started, like I said, around 11. Um, I remember definitely being in elementary school. So you remember back in Georgia, we continue elementary school for a long time <laughs> before we got to middle school. So I remember being in like fifth or sixth grade. Um, and so he would come in my room at night and abuse me. Um, it started with touch um, and then it led to him actually trying to penetrate me. Um, and so I think, again, I was fearful, so I didn't say anything. Um, and I would play sleep while this was going on because I was just so scared. I didn't know what to do. If anybody was going to believe me, I knew he was the breadwinner to the family. So as a, a child, I'm thinking through all these things, I just don't say anything. Um, he, in his, you know, his response, he would act like he never did anything. Um, and so one day I decided to tell my mom what happened and she took both of us to a park. I told her like, he's touching me. And she took both of us to the park and she asked him, was he touching me? He denied. He said, you already know she doesn't like me because mind you, I had an attitude issue um, with him because of the abuse, right? Were um, you still that same age at that time? Um, you know, a lot of stuff gets cloudy. You know, when you're talking about trauma, your brain yeah. just tries not to deal with it. And so um, I don't remember the time frame of like, I can't give you time frames because I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, that's um, But I do remember us going to the park and having that conversation. And he denied. And I was like, well, no, he did do this. And he was like, well, you know, she has an attitude issue. You know, she don't like me. And my mom continued to let him stay in the house. I think he left maybe like a day or two, but he ended up coming back. And so at this moment, as a child, what it communicated to me was nobody's going to believe me. So just let it keep happening. Um, and so the abuse continued to happen until, again, it got to the point where there was actual penetration. Um, I woke up and there was semen on me and I ran in the bathroom, called my mother. And I told her, I was like, of course, I didn't know what it was at that time. And so I'm telling her, I said, Ma, it's white, sticky stuff on me. And she was like, I am on the way home. She came home. I remember 
um, jumping in the shower because I just felt so nasty. He was banging on the door, um, trying to get in, asking what happened. Um, and my mom ended up getting home. Um, she took me to the hospital. Um, I remember them back then at that time, they did um, pap smears for abuse exams. Um, and that was just traumatic in itself. Imagine, you know, can you hear you me? Know, uh-huh. What do they do now out of um, curiosity? What has been the difference in protocol? So the difference now they don't, um, they do swabs if need be, but they just do a, a regular checkup. They just open the vaginal lips or they look at the genital area. They don't insert anything unless they see discharge. Right. And so again, hey, hold on. woman, I, I need us to stick a pen in this for a second. Okay. Young child mm-hmm. having to get a pap smear. That is incredibly traumatic. Yeah. yeah. I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. I, I that was just, yeah. It, I remember the lights. I remember the people being around me. I remember, you know, the feeling and holding on to my mom. Like, what is going on? Because again, I wasn't fully penetrated, right? And so, mind you, you're sticking something in me and I'm like, whoa, what is, you know, and it's painful. And so I remember them swabbing me. Um, we go through all the legal processes and I get to court. Mind you, they're asking me questions, pulling me out of school. I'm talking to attorneys. I didn't know who these people were at the time. And I get, you know, finally the court date comes up and I get on the stand and I lie. I told them that I did not see him. And a lot of people ask me what oh. mm-hmm. No, I was just, I'm sorry. I was just saying, wow. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I remember getting on the stand and saying, I don't want my siblings to be without their father like I was. And I didn't want them to blame me. And so mind you, I had, they did my forensic interview. They did all the, you know, the pre-stuff post, um, pre to the, um, to the actual court date. And I get on the stand and my, I remember seeing my attorney's face like, oh my God. Um, so yeah, I remember lying and of course he's free. Um, he, you know, has a good relationship with his children. Um, he and I does not have a good relationship. I actually talked to him, I want to say two years ago to confront him um, with my mom present because there was a lot of things my mom didn't know um, that there was oral sex involved. Um, I remember him performing oral sex on me. Um, I remember a lot of things. And so I was in that same age. Yeah, so all this was in that 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 same time frame. I want to say within that that two to three year time period. How did can I ask? How did it stop? Um, so the stop the stopping came when I when he tried to penetrate and I went in the bathroom, told my mom I see uh, white stuff on me, sticky stuff on me, and that's when it stopped because mm-hmm. we went through all the court process. That's when law enforcement got involved. Defense found out that it was in fact real. Yeah, yeah at that time mm-hmm. yep so at that point she knew because i wouldn't have known what white sticky stuff is you know so yeah and first of all thank you honestly for sharing this story and and just to to have known you through all of this time and see the transition of bravery that you've gotten to and mm-hmm. how you've been able to reverse engineer this story to being a, a vehicle of help um, for people who have experienced the same types of things. How did that relationship 
affect the relationship between you and your siblings and you and your mother at that time? I did you ever go through a period of resentment or feeling towards your mother for not believing you initially? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, about two to three years ago, I think um, I, I want to say I actually had the conversation with my abuser and my mother. I think I resented my mom more than I did my, my abuser because I told her, I said, I told you. And at that age, my expectation of you as a mom was to protect me. And I feel like you didn't protect me. And we had an honest dialogue. This was like my child mind versus my adult mind, right? You know, so I had to go back to the child state and tell her what I felt. And then hearing her response as an adult, she was like, I just didn't know what to do. I consulted people. Um, he made most of the money. I didn't know how we were going to make a living. I got three children. Um, and I didn't even know she aborted one of them, you know, in this process of all these things going on. And so I think there was a lot going on for her that I didn't know. Again, now understanding as an adult, but it, it, it changed our relationship for years. We were arguing and we just didn't have a good relationship until we had this conversation. And one of the things that um, changed that was one of the support groups that I took, because I didn't get counseling as a child. They offered it. I told them, I don't want counseling. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. Um, and I ended up taking a support, a sexual abuse support group um, class at my church. And it changed my life. It helped me understand what forgiveness is and what that looks like and helped me deal with the resentment issues that I was holding towards my mom and my abuser. So um, like I said, those conversations were pivotal, like in my life, like, and it changed my mom and our relationship. Um, me and my brother and sister have a better relationship now. We're working towards those things, right? Because I just isolated myself. Are your siblings aware? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they, when I talked to them about it, they knew something was going on, but they didn't know what it was. And I told them, this is the reason why I act the way that I did towards y'all. I didn't want a relationship with anybody. They all had the same last names. They all were a family. And to me, I was like, just the, you know, the black sheep, like I didn't belong. And so Freeman, you know, like I was very present at school. Like that was my outlet, engaging in extracurricular activities. I'm going to do the best that I can at those things. Those things became my outlet. And that's why I think I did so well in those things um, because it was just my, my outlet, way to get out the house, way to escape from what was going on at home. Hey, can I ask you a question? Oh. Uh, may I ask how old you are now? So I'm 33 now. Okay. Did you ever have a, um, not a breakdown, but just a really challenging time as a teenager and as an adult? And what was that turning point for you to get help if you ever got therapy or just got support from it? I'm just curious, like, Kind of like, was it anything that maybe triggered it as you got older and you got to a point where like, okay, I finally got to deal with this in order to really be my whole self and move forward. And now obviously you are a therapist yourself. Um, I don't know if you specialize in this area, but I'm sure you do work around it. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what that turning point was like when you finally were able to get some help and how it triggered you as a, a young adult, if at all. Absolutely. Um, I was very promiscuous. So um, I would have sex, drink a lot, smoke. Those were my ways of escape. And I remember being in college, like, I don't want to live like this no more. Like, I, I, like I, I don't. And I remember coming, I transferred schools and I came back home 
And one of my best friends told me about a class they were doing at her church at the time. And she was like, there, it's a sexual abuse support group. Like you, it'll be good for you. And her mom spoke to me about it. And I was like, nah, I'm okay. You know, we always questioning, but I'm like, I'm good. And I remember ended up signing up for the class and it just walked me through this journey. And I remember dealing with so much emotion that I had held in for quite some time, but I was using all these other things to cover that up and to escape and not deal with my reality, you know? And so I think that class, that support group was a turning point for me. It opened my eyes to what I was really feeling, how it was affecting my relationships, who I was choosing to be in relationships with, my trust issues, um, and all those things, that healing process guided me continually to want to be in this field. And I do specialize in trauma now because again, who better to do it? You know, who better than someone who understands and set exactly where these children are sitting and these families are sitting. I am so proud of you. And let me just say, girl, we're going to be calling on you to do more together because your story is phenomenal. Your strength and courage is um, beyond to be celebrated, right? Um, your resiliency. And it's just so we talk a lot about, you know, recovery, right? And resiliency when we talk about mental health and behavioral health. How important is it to have a circle of friends or that family support, right? When you're recovering or once you can get to that point to talk about it, because as we know, a lot of people hide this for years. They may not unpack these layers for 20, 30, 40 years later. And I know men, that's a whole different subject. Yeah. I know men that have been sexually abused and never speak on it, right? Never bring it to the light of day. And it just grows and festers and, and that stress of it all eventually leads to some sort of physical diseases. So just talk about the importance of you know, support from someone within the family or outside of it in, in that journey to recovery? Yeah, I think support is so important. I think a lot of studies even show that the more support you have, that community is so important. And oftentimes we escape and we retreat and we isolate and we withdraw thinking that that's gonna solve it. And it's that community aspect and so was, was so important. It was important for me, right? I had spiritual people, I had, you know, family members just reaching out, checking in, how are you doing? How are things going? Um, but the time in my life where everybody ignored it and act like it didn't happen was the most traumatic and the most harmful because you don't feel like you have people that you can lean on. So it perpetuates this isolation and withdrawal, right? And so I think that that, that community piece is so important, whether it's um, from the people that you, you know, expected from or least expected from. And I think I got more from that church community. And that was what I needed at that time. And family, they had joined along the way. And so let me ask you this, because when dealing with something to this caliber inside of a family, mm -hmm. um, to, to speak to what even your mother said, a lot of times you'll have family members where this is happening inside the family and they don't want to lose the breadwinner or it may be happening amongst children within the family. Mm -hmm. um, I did want to, and I do specifically want to ask about that because you and I had a very interesting conversation about that. Is it considered abuse when it's happening amongst children within the family, cousins of each other um, mm -hmm. that are close within age or how is something like that handled? And what do you tell those family members who fear destroying the family 
um, and not knowing how to handle that that the weight of that kind of trauma? Yeah, so I think um, to the first part is um, we can't fear um, getting people help, right? If it's child on child, um, like you said, where there's close age range, where is the behavior coming from? I want to say that again because that was a very powerful thing too. I forgot what I said. For what I said. You can't fear getting people help. Yeah, you can. And I think that is, it's so important. I think that normally we just say, oh, we don't want it to break up our family. How do we know? How do we know it's going to break up? You know, if we, if everybody is supporting and everybody is like, okay, let's figure this thing out. It can't possibly break the family. If anything, it's in the most um, trial provoking area that we grow better, you know, grow closer. You get what I'm saying? When we're down and we can work through these things together. And so I think um, to your point of the child on child. So of course, in working in um, child advocacy centers, uh, these things have to be reported. Um, Closer in age, you wanna make sure they get help. Where is this behavior coming from? Um, Where did they learn it? Because again, we have the media, we have, um, you know, perpetrators that will teach a child and the child just normalizes it and think it's okay and they go teach another child. So we really need to take these things serious because I think growing up, they're like, oh, kids just being kids, they just touching each other. They're learning their bodies. Yeah, but we need to make sure, right? And who better to get involved in professionals? Um, So I would definitely, in those moments, get, you know, at least social work involved, try to figure out, take the child to the hospital, just figure out if they're okay and let the professionals ask questions. Um, Because a lot of times when parents ask questions, they ask questions in a suggestive way. Did so-and-so touch you? Well, you're giving them somebody's name. You know, you want to be general when you're asking questions. And so, um, again, when the age gap is larger, um, that's reportable. That is defects, law enforcement involvement. Um, you want to make sure because, again, a 12-year-old knows not to be touching on a four or five-year-old. You know, so anything over that four-year, that's you, you're, you're pushing law enforcement. So four-year is about the margin between what becomes reported and then what becomes um, counseled, if you will, I guess, for lack of better terms. So it has to be reported either way, right? It just negate, it just shows who gets involved, right? And so uh, whether it's just defects only, law enforcement and defects, um, so all of those pieces are a part of that, right? And so, um, but you want to report it because we're mandated reporters anyway. So if anybody comes to me, whether it's child on child and tell me that there's abuse happening, I have to report it. It's no... What's the age? It's not my job to investigate. I just have to report it, let defects and law enforcement do their job and go from there. But sometimes it just stays at defects. So two questions that I have. Um, mm-hmm. If the parent feels like, well, I don't want my child to go to jail. I don't want my child to have this scarlet letter. My child's not a bad child. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, so I want us to handle it internally or something along those lines. What do you say to that parent who fears coming forward because they feel as if now their child becomes subject to a pipeline of prison and and issues that come after that. I think, do you want them to become, to be dealt with now, or do you want them to be dealt with as an adult? Because a lot of times not doing anything reinforces the behavior because again, you're not getting the help that you need, that child needs, 
right? If it's reported, it's not guaranteed that they will go to jail, right? Sometimes they can just try them as a juvenile and get them services. It doesn't necessarily mean jail. Um, it may just mean, like I said, getting services. Now there's other charges that are upped to adult charges because of the severity of the cases, right? Um, but again, it's like we need to get the children help where they are. Um, otherwise, we're perpetuating behavior that will probably put them in a worse predicament later on down the line. Can I ask you two, um, real quick, one last question about you from a personal perspective, and then we, we want to um, have you be able to leave some resources and stuff too for us. And I think Free might have one other question, and then we can wrap up. Um, how are you, if I can ask, and you totally don't have to answer, do you feel like you have a healthy relationship now in terms of intimacy? And uh, are you looking forward to starting your own family if you haven't already done so? Yeah, so this is a conversation that I have often with my pastor. Um, right now I'm celibate, I don't have sex, but I, I do feel like when I was um, in that predicament, I was just like, again, promiscuous. I just was looking for love in all the wrong places. And so, and now being celibate and saving myself, I'm respecting my body. I'm not allowing people to just run through my body and mistreat me. Um, and I do eventually want a family. I do feel like trust is one of those things I'm continually working at, right? Um, because those things have been violated. But um, the reality is, I don't know what it's gonna be like until it happens, you know? Um, I think a lot of times trauma can come up in different ways at different moments. Um, I don't know what it's going to be if my husband wake me up in the middle of the night and want to have sex. I don't know what that's going to be like for me. If there's no warning, right? Will I get triggered? You know, I don't know, right? And so the best I can do is continue to just work on myself and, and realize those issues and try to deal with those things as they come. Yeah, I, I just, wow, I'm so inspired by you and your story and just, you know, you speaking to us so candidly, you know, we really appreciate it. And I think your story is going to help so many people. You have no idea. Um, and certainly it sounds a shame. We would want to support you in any way we can and would love to continue to thank you free for bringing us such an incredible, like you, you have exceeded our expectations. Um, just wow. Cause it is so many uncertainties, so many questions, so many fears that people have. I do want to also do a follow-up just, you know, focusing specifically on, you know, men and women or even, you know, transgender community and, and sexual abuse. It's just a lot of layers, right, of, he excuse me, of healing that's needed um, around this subject matter in our community. And we've just scratched the surface, but we, we are truly, truly, truly grateful for you for sharing your personal story journey because I know that at times can be triggering too. I, you know, share a lot of my own story around my depression and suicidal ideation. And I know it at times it gets to be a lot. Rehash my story. So you know we thank you for that. Free, did you have one last question for Nite? I did have one last question. Do you currently have a therapist, Nite? Do you still go through therapy to ensure that what you experience does not trigger you while you go through the process of working with others? Who have to share their story with you consistently. Yeah, I, I do. I do. There's something called uh, secondary trauma or vicarious trauma, right? Um, as a professional counselor, we're hearing stories all the time. I mean, I have seen parents break down or having to give them news of their, you know, or being present while they're getting news that their child has a sexually transmitted disease and there's no disclosure. So uh, again, we're hearing these experiences 
all day, <laughs> you know, five days a week, right? And so um, therapy was something that I actually picked up, I want to say last year, um, because I realized the importance. So I was like, man, every therapist should have a therapist, you know, um, because we need outlets too. And so that's so important. And I also have that spiritual um, component as well um, from my pastor as well. So I have those two avenues to, to help me um, become a better person and to be able to not allow these things to affect my life continuously. So, yeah. That's great. We talk about that all the time. We, we even have a podcast episode entitled, Does Your Therapist Have a Therapist? <laughs> Maybe you can check that out one day. It's um, I can't remember which episode it is, but it's really good. Yes. I, that's so important. Man, I'm, first of all, I just wanted to thank you. You know, I've always told you that this story would be something that is um healing for other people, but just much bigger than you. And and I've always found it unfortunate that you had to experience it, but at the same time, proud of how you processed it. Yeah. So I, I'm really grateful for you doing this with us and taking the time. Um, we've also had Amanda on to speak with her um, about her father and her experience. So this is me being able to reach back and bring all of the people who we've kind of come up with to talk to them now as adults going through the things that we experienced as children yeah. is really, really inspiring to see and to kind of have an outlet like Silence of Shame and what Shanti has created um, to open up doors for these things that we grew up fast experiencing and knowing amongst each other. Because I remember knowing these things being young with you while no one else would know. So now to look back at it 20, years later you know what i mean and see like this is where we are this is very inspiring so i just want to congratulate you on your career and as it continues to become more and more successful and just thank you so much for doing this conversation and all that we'll do from here forward as well yeah. thank y'all for having me i think it's been an awesome opportunity um to aid people as we continue to silence the shame man some we got to speak out because otherwise people won't know and they won't feel heard you know, or feel like other people understand. So thank you for providing the platform for that. Oh, we're so grateful. And again, I echo all of free sentiments. You are just such a jewel. And we thank God for covering you during that incredibly difficult time in your life. And we look forward to continued partnership and we want to be able to support the work that you do need to So tell our listeners how they can stay in touch with you, um, I don't know if you have a private practice or if wherever you work, if you're still accepting clients, we just want to be able to, or if you have any support group information around the topic of sexual abuse and trauma, uh, please give that information now. Yeah, so I facilitate or aid, I'm one of the facilitators for a sexual abuse support group called Tamar Sexual Abuse Support Group. Um, it is housed um, indicator. Spell it, spell it for T-A-M-A-R sexual abuse support group and so this is for our listeners in the atlanta area correct because we have all around the country yeah and expand this the, the goal is to continue to expand this um this sexual abuse support group um so i'm one of the facilitators for that um you can go to www.branchoutreach.org to get more information about registration we actually have a class coming up august the 2nd so if you want to get in that group, um, it's, it's amazing um, how we've seen the transformation. Um, it's the same class that I took 
Um, so now I'm circling back and around from a facilitator perspective. So I've been doing that for, I want to say three or four years now. Um, so that is a good resource. Um, as far as private practice, I'm in a partnership practice with Speaking Peace Counseling. Um, and um, you can find that on whether it's, uh, I think it's www.speakingpeacecounseling.com. Um, and so I'm taking clients through um, that avenue as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone that have been listening. Uh, we appreciate you uh, listening to this important episode. You've been tuned into episode 48 of the Silence and Shame podcast, Sexual Trauma and Family Support. Um, I am your co-host, Shanti Das. You can reach me at shantidas404. Uh, remember to follow us on Instagram at Silence the Shame, on Facebook and Twitter at Silence TH Shame. And you can check out our podcasts um, if you got iTunes or Spotify or SoundCloud or Google Play. Check us out. Tell your friends and family about it. And, and what else do we need them to do free? And how can we follow you? Yes, rate, subscribe, share, and comment. That helps us. Let us know what you want to hear. Let us know what you think of what you've heard. Um, that always helps us grow. Um, you can find me at freedivisioneverywhere.com and, and at literally everywhere. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how you can keep up with me and the things that I have going on. Amazing, amazing. So remember what we said, July is Minority Mental Health Awareness Month or otherwise known as BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color Awareness Month. So make sure you're taking this information and sharing it within your own communities, especially communities of color. And last but not least, make sure you take time, save a life and silence the shame.